Starting from your right to left, Dimitri Daskalakis, who's here from the New York um, Public Health Department and is a really world-class expert on PrEP. You're going to hear from him right after lunch, but we have a couple PrEP questions, and he also is a great HIV treater. Uh, you already met Joe Iran, Connie Benson, from, you saw earlier, Paul Volberding, you've seen all day, and then the empty chair is Clint Eastwood. <laughs> no, actually, the empty chair is uh, Trip Dulick, who's going to be speaking to you this afternoon as well. He's from Cornell University and the New York Hospital, and Connie Benson was originally from the Ohio State University, which I can never understand why they put a the in front of it. What we're going to do is we're going to talk about cases literally from the clinic based on questions that I accumulated over the last year from colleagues and phone calls and emails common questions that are emerging in the clinic now. And the point is to convert those questions into a case. It's a stylized case. It's very unlikely to be a real patient. doesn't matter. It's getting to a point that answers the question. And what it will do is it incorporate a lot of what you heard earlier today. We aren't going to talk about future therapies. We're talking about treatments today on a wide range of topics. So with that as introduction, um, these are my disclosures. I think you have them in your handouts. So we're going to talk about uh, co-infection with Hep B, pregnant women, uh, partners of seropositive patients, and things with chronic kidney disease, among others. There's about 12 topics. I'm just going to go to our time runs out. Uh, so we might not get to the last couple of cases. That's okay. Uh, I, I made the last ones the ones that um, weren't, as, weren't as prominent in my mind. or the, It's the least ones that I hear about. So here's a common question. Seems like we're now starting ARV therapy for everyone, but what about an elite controller? Anybody struggle with that? So this is a 30-year-old guy who was diagnosed with HIV four years ago. He's asymptomatic, and he's got a low viral load. And I like to at least check a DNA just to make sure, because otherwise, how do I know? And it was positive. His other labs are normal. He's HLA-B5701 negative. His genotype from his DNA is wild type. He's got no past medical history, and he's okay to start if you think he should. So what are you going to do? You're going to start therapy on this elite controller? Yes, no, maybe. Go ahead and vote. Sounds like the fan belt song from Chariots of Fire. You know, ch -ch 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 -ch. is it running on the beach? All right, most people would. Panel, what do you think? Dimitri, what would you do? So you got to use the microphone. Uh, yeah. That's the only time I've ever been called quiet. The, um, <laughs> hello. The, uh, my, my, my gut response to this first starts off with the, the desire to get everyone on antiretroviral therapy, I think, is the right impulse. And I think one of the more important comments in this uh, case is that the patient was interested and willing and was looking for your advice. And so I think that um, if we were talking about very toxic medicines a long time ago, I would have some debate back and forth. But given some potential data and some potential signal that, that this may reduce inflammation even with low level yeah. of complication, a patient who's willing to do it, that uh, calculus comes together to make me feel that I would be on the yes side of this as well. Okay. Anybody want to take the counter, per Connie? I don't want to take the counter argument, but what I do want to suggest is perhaps, although we never have recommended using markers of inflammation as a means to making decisions about patient care, maybe this is a situation where 
using some of the inflammatory markers that have been shown in numerous studies now to be predictive of adverse outcomes might be something you could do in this population. If the patient really has elevated inflammatory markers, that suggests that there's some low level of ongoing replication that's occurring and it's triggering an inflammatory reaction and that seems to be linked to adverse outcomes in large studies and so that might be something that pushed me over the edge. So, so now so that obviously presupposes right. that you have support for doing that. Right. So we have uh, heard social sort of behavioral, the patient wants to consider this if you think it's a good idea and we hear biology. Joe, what do you think? Yeah, I was just going to say a simple one is actually just CD4, CD8 ratio. Several groups now have published on that as being a, 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 a predictive marker. Specifically. Um, what do you mean? What, uh, if what they, about if the they ratio? If they have an abnormal CD4, CD8 ratio, in this case meaning an abnormally high CD8 cell count, that may be something that would be as useful as getting an IL-6 or a D-dimer level. And if the guy was on the fence, I mean, I, I, yeah. I agree totally with the, what Dimitri said, but if, let's say he was on the fence and he was looking for ways to be convinced, that, that would be one where, where I, I would look at that and, and perhaps use it as a, as a, to demonstrate to him that there's something um, right. uh, immunologically imbalanced. Right. Paul. So I, I've y you're I voted uh, yes as well, but just to add a word of caution that this is somebody uh, with a CD4 count of 890. Uh, his chance of then being on this therapy that you're starting for 20 plus years is high and you know we have this ongoing little signal of a back of ear cardiovascular disease. Uh, we, we don't have a lot of experience with TAF yet in the long run, obviously not. Yeah. Um, and just that anything we use is likely to have some toxicity uh, and this is somebody where you really don't want uh, much yeah. if any toxicity, so a, a caution about that as well. Right. So Trip, uh, I'll get, I'll bring you into this with a different part of the question. The question is about elite controller who wants to go on therapy, high CD4 count, an undetectable virus, and the panel and most of the audience said that he said he's wanting to if you want him to, if you think it's a good idea. Let's change it a little bit. Let's say he's the same guy, but he's not really enthusiastic about being on treatment, but you're monitoring him and you're going to see some changes, at what point would you say, look, pal, I think it's time? CD4 count change, viral load, how would you make a decision about when to start or when to recommend that if he initially at a high CD4 count isn't that interested? Sure, I, and I'm sorry to come late, so I don't okay. know what's been said, but um, these kind of conversations I have often with elite controllers, people say, should I go on, particularly in the present day, when the recommendations say we should treat everybody? Um, and I think elite controllers actually includes a lot of a, a heterogeneous population of people. So some people will progress over time and you can follow their CD4s and that often uh, makes the patients wanna, want to take it. Um, if he says, I don't want to take it under any circumstances, well, that's okay, but you should readdress every time you see him and say, here's the new data. I mean, right now, you probably reviewed this. There is data that elite controllers have higher immune activation, yeah, more uh, microbial translocation, and so we're worried that that could lead to end-organ events down the road, so that there probably is a reason to treat, although we don't have the data. Right. Okay. So that's just getting us started. Uh, there's a few more. So let's, this is a question that comes up a lot. Uh, in a, not in the elite controller necessarily, but in any patient, we now know we're going to lean towards treating everyone. 
uh, whether we start immediately on day one. I'm, I'm not as much of a fan of that, but uh, sometime in the first couple weeks or month or so after you diagnose someone, it's about time. So what regimen should I use? So this is a 30-year-old woman, newly diagnosed, asymptomatic, viral load's 28,000, CD4 count 650, B57 negative, wild-type virus, no prior medical history to speak of. She doesn't have any children, doesn't plan to become pregnant. She's okay to start. Do you think it's okay? Of course you do. What are you going to recommend for her? And now I'll let you digest this for a minute. The FDC means fixed dose combination. Then the ritonavir can be interchanged with COVID, whatever you'd like. And there's TAF options, and there's Abacavir options, and there's a world of options. If, you're gonna, if you don't like any of the options there, just press zero, which means you don't like the options there. Um, had enough time, let's go ahead and vote. All right, so everybody knows the music. I'm going to say this is something that Andrew Aronson plays when he watches Florida play defense, and of course they never play very well. Um, so, all right, all right. Most people went with some sort of integrase inhibitor, either Elvitegravir or Dalyotegravir, and either with Abacavir 3TC or TAF. Some folks went with boosted Darunavir. Tripp, it looks like they've been reading your guidelines. That's good to know. And that's the call I was on, actually, it's the <laughs> guidelines call. Um, yeah, I would vote for the audience broad strokes and say integrase inhibitor for uh, potency, convenience, and tolerability. And then among the integrase inhibitors, I think we don't have direct comparative data, but once a day is usually preferable. I think that's why Rao Tegravir scored zero. Wow, zero. What if Rao, what if Rao was once a day? Because those data seem to be coming. If Dr. Iron's an expert on this yeah, subject. Let's go so to Dr. Iron on that. He may want to talk about What it. about once a day Rao Tegravir? Well, I, um, I mean, I think that we will see data that once a day Rao Tegravir is um, in a new formulation that's different than the QD Merck formulation that Tripp is referring to. Um, uh, uh, will come out, I think, uh, this summer. And, and um, obviously, we have to look at the data. But I think if it's reasonable, I think. There is an issue because the milligram dose will still be um, uh, enough. So I'm not sure it's going to be one pill. It may be able to be once a day, but it might not be one pill. Just to be contrarian, I actually pushed button 10. Okay. Um, Go. I think this is actually a, a person that um, a ropivirine-based therapy might be quite reasonable, ah. actually. Um, and, and it is extremely well tolerated and... and uh, um, I don't think she had any contraindications as we were going through there, and, and um, uh, I've, I've had a lot of good experience in terms of tolerability of that regimen, and it won't impact uh, creatinine clearance uh, or um, uh, estimated creatinine clearance. And so, so, and it has modest drug interactions, uh, unlike cobicystat-based therapy. So, yeah, I, I just did it to be contrary. <laughs> I, I yeah, but I you just showed a bunch of slides from your own group about the durability <laughs> of integrase inhibitors. So you're going against your own group. That's allowed. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Um, so, so he said he wanted to be contrarian. There you go. So, uh, Trip. Just to add one more factor that we didn't talk about was barrier to resistance and this so-called forgivability for people who may miss doses now and then. And... Uh, you know, the integrase inhibitors do stack up there. We uh, don't have a lot of data, but it looks like dolutegravir has a higher barrier to resistance. And so that may be a better option for someone who may miss doses, meaning they're a human being. Yeah. 
So any of these can work. I think everyone in the audience knows about the Rolpivirine 100,000 copy cut point. You don't want to really use it above when that's the setting. But this was 28,000, so I think totally legit. And I guess my take-home point from this is that we have a myriad of great choices. And it's really up to you and the patient to cobble that out, and everybody in this room does that every day. Yeah, to me, just one other comment, which is that um, there's also a sort of built-in appeal for an integrase inhibitor given the very rapid first-order kinetics from the prevention perspective as well, that sort of shutting down vi uh, viral replication fairly quickly is, is appealing, especially in someone who may potentially um, have encounters that lead to transmission. So that's, that's another plus. Right. So these are data Joe showed from his clinic at Croy. This is from our clinic at UAB, and this is just shows you the wide range of what people start. And uh, the green um, group here back in the old days was uh, Favrin's. And then when Darunavir got approved, that dropped off. And then you can see the mixture of, of options in here, which is exactly what you all voted for. So you're, everybody's on the kind of same page. One thing that I think we may have to encounter not so much maybe in the U.S., but around the world where there's a single-payer healthcare system and people live longer and do better in that system than in ours for some crazy reason. Um, but w in those systems, it may come down to cost as more drugs become generic. So just want to put that out there. I don't think it'll apply with us because there's so much ADAP uh, action and 340B pricing kind of takes cost out of the picture. But look at this. This is, um, this is the cost of one year of therapy with generics going to developing countries. And you can scroll down, but look at this. TAF, 3TC, Dolutegravir, $60 a year. A year! We can stop this epidemic, sort of, but, but at least you can see that cost won't be a barrier in these countries over time. Now, let's move on. So what if she were pregnant, the same lady, this time she's diagnosed because somebody did their job well and tested her while she was pregnant and she was positive. Exact same CD4 count viral load, same story. Otherwise, this is her first pregnancy. You're going to start therapy. Um, some other option, I, I feel embarrassed that I didn't put rolpivirine in here, uh, but so go with that for number nine. Uh, but you can see the choices here. Um, go ahead and vote. So who was, the, who was the producer of all the James Bond movies? Albert Broccoli? Broccoli. Uh, yeah, Broccoli, there you go. All right, so a lot of people like the Rolpivirin. Good sales job, Joe. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I, I deliberately did this. It, sorry, I won't have any more, I don't think, trick questions, but this was a trick question. Sorry. But it was to make a point, and that is that there aren't enough data yet regarding the safety of TAP. And pregnancy. And so for the time being, we should start while she's pregnant with a non-TAF regimen, ideally. It, the data will be forthcoming, but we don't want to be surprised. And the second thing is a little bit of a trick, is dolutegravir is one that we're, they're struggling with the PK on. Uh, so I'm not going to go to the panel for this, just to get to the next question and keep us a little bit on time. So dolutegravir, in the background, there's no teratogenicity. It looks like it should work. But there's a high placental transfer of dolutegravir relative to others, and an unexpected uh, placental transfer with fetal accumulation. And when you start doing the numbers, the AUC and the mom goes down, but the baby in the baby it kind of goes up. And so the 
the, the, the concern is that this has to be worked out. So again, in pregnancy, the two newest drugs, you want to sort of be a little cautious with, and that's the point of the question. Yeah, Trip. Perinatal guidelines are worth consulting here, and they don't have many of the newer drugs actually that many people voted for. So the only integrase inhibitor right now that's had enough data according to perinatal guidelines is Raltegravir, not LV, yeah. not Dalu. Right. And so, th and you're right, TAF's not on there either. So Raltegravir, uh, uh, not Raltegravir. Raltegravir is on. Yeah. And what about Rolpivirine? It's it's allowed now, I Susan? think, right, Susan? It's alternate, but it's, its safety is kind of there, right? So the people who went to the bottom. All right, so now this is a common scenario, right? You do, you test someone, they're new to therapy, but they've had a transmitted virus that's M184V. Anybody seen that? Yeah, of course. So this, now the question is, what do you do? Look, it's the same lady. Um, this time she's not pregnant, and she's back to where she was on our first question, et cetera. Does the M184V change your vote at all? And so these are basically the exact same regimens. Again, go with Joe Aaron for zero if you like ropivirine, um, and you can go ahead and vote. They did, they played that song just because it's somewhere near my house. Not really, but closer than Chicago. All right. Again, protease inhibitor, it's, it's more or less the same voting. Um, this, now we have 21% instead of 20% going for ropivirine. Joe, what do you think about ropivirine in this setting? Um, I, I would be just a little bit more anxious about it. Um, I also would be very anxious about the majority choice here. Um, I think the, the one thing to take home about 184V is what it does to other nucleosides, right? And it, it, it decreases susceptibility uh, to abacavir. Right, uh, while it increases susceptibility to tenofovir, zidovudine, mm -hmm. probably uh, uh, stavudine, even though we don't use that. So I, I even though maybe uh, dalutegravir monotherapy is can work. Yeah. Um, there actually was just especially twenty eight thousand copies. Right, maybe. it's possible, but but I would be I would personally would not be comfortable with with choice number seven um, or or choice number uh, three. Um, I, I I would have picked either eight or or uh, two, uh, and I actually picked eight in this setting, but I, I'd be curious what other people would do. What if you had the TAF with FTC and ropivirine? You think that would overcome? Uh, I, I mean, it's probably okay. There's a low viral load. I, I think that that's, you know, um, I, I think it's probably okay. I, I would, I personally would go with it, with, with an anchor agent that has a very high barrier to resistance, and, and ropivirine clearly doesn't. doesn't. Trip. Yeah, no, I, I the, uh, just what you said, if you're knocking off one of the three drugs, you got to look at the other two drugs very carefully. Ropivirine has a low barrier to resistance, so why would you pick that? I, I wouldn't pick it. There's better choices on this list. I agree with Joe about the concern about abacavir. Um, there's concern about L-vitegravir combo here, too. Remember, the boosting doesn't mean that you're raising the barrier to resistance. It still has a lower barrier to resistance. I'm surprised that more people didn't vote for protease inhibitors. That's the class we actually know would work really well. Dalutegravir probably works, but again, first regimen, do you really want to gamble? Yeah. Okay, that was the point I was trying to make with just the cross-resistance issues. And again, I, I, I don't want to leave you with the wrong impression. Abacavir still has activity when a, three, when a M184V is present. It's just, it takes a little bit of a hit. It's not, it doesn't get wiped out. 
Um, yeah, Dimitri. I'm sure it's something that everyone also knows, but the fact that the M184B and the regimens that include tenofovir, just to sort of say what we know, that that enhances the effect of tenofovir. So, right. it, it it, so I think that that's another plus if you have an M184B to include tenofovir somewhere in the mix. Right. Okay, so what's the most important test? This is a little bit of a diversion. Um, Connie did a great job covering Croy. This is one of the studies that um, we had talked ahead of time, and this is one that I was going to present to you. Uh, what important tests can I use to determine whether a patient's at high risk for cardiovascular disease or a heart attack, actually? So a 56-year-old guy starts on therapy many years ago, no known PI mutations. He's HCV co-infected, not treated yet. Um, he will be treated after you hear Andrew Aronson's talk later today. Um, He's been through several regimens. Now he's a Bacavir, 3TC, Dalutegravir, fixed-dose combination, doing really well. Happy, cruising along. Um, he's a smoker, he's diabetic, and he has a family history for coronary artery disease. So he's pretty high risk. Now, if you had access to all of these tests, which one of these might you guess has the best predictor, is the best predictor for an MI in the next 6 to 12 months? It's a curveball question. There is an answer. Go ahead and vote. I don't remember all the commands like Abatui, Abadaka, but now we have an answer. Look at that. Okay, so, all right, most people want to CRP and D-dimer. I'm just going to cut to the chase because there's, there's an answer that I thought was interesting. Um, Joe mentioned earlier CD4, CD8 ratio. There are data that show if you divide um, a, a population of, say, 10,000 people with HIV into quintiles of, of not the CRO, but quintiles in terms of groups of five, right? And you take the, the lowest CD4, CD8 ratio, meaning very high CD8, very low CD4 at the time, that is a very important marker. That starts to discriminate in terms of cancer risk, and cardiovascular risk, a number of things, but that's not the answer to the question for reasons. So um, Peter Hunt at, at the Croy meeting talked about uh, a, a work that he had done with the Scenics group where there was, they looked at two different types of MIs. There's a primary, which is what we normally think about with plaque and blockage and that type of thing. There's also secondary MIs where there's either perfusion demand mismatch or somebody's on methamphetamine, which I've never had a patient take that, so I don't know what that's like. <laughs> you have to tell me. But people on cocaine and meth can get a heart attack at age 37. That's not the same risk, so we have to remember to separate those out. And in fact, in the Scenics cohort, all across the board, when they adjudicated them, it was 50-50, type 1 and type 2, believe it or not. We're talking mostly about the type 2. This guy's 56, has a lot of positive history. So this is what Peter Hunt presented, and this is just the univariate unadjusted, and you can see a lot of these came to the fore, a lot of what you voted for, D-dimers, uh, C-reactive protein, um, uh, oxidative LDL, IL-6. Those are the ones that rose at the top. What was fascinating was here's the CD4, CD8 ratio. Remember I told you about that lowest quartile or quintile. Look at that, 22-fold higher risk. Just look how it separates. It's interesting, something you might think about. Um, you're not going to have a quintile to go by, but if you see that being very low, you'll look at it. And well, it was actually, there was a number there. It was less than 0 0.32. So that's a number to kind of keep in mind. Um, 
But, but really what was fascinating was that D-dimer came out loud and clear as a really pretty good predictor, and it remained a good predictor when adjusted for any of these combinations. It just was very stable as a predictor. Why do I show that? Does that mean you should be doing D-dimers on everyone? Not necessarily. But it's a test we have readily available. We don't have IL-6, you know, we just can order now and wouldn't know how to interpret it anyway. But D-dimer, we, we get. We do that a lot. So I'm just putting it out there for everybody and, and it's something that we may think about as an emerging test when you're really concerned about something. You say, what are you going to do about it? Well, maybe you'll start a statin if you're on the fence or you'll refer to the reprieve study around here. Or um, you might start an aspirin or you might otherwise. He would have been on both by his history. All right, let's move on. Yeah, Paul. But, but the most important thing you could do would be to really work on smoking. Yeah, that would help. I'd use his D-dimer to convince him, right, yeah. Okay, should I stop? How many, have, how many people get this question or this dilemma? You got a guy who's on, I'm going to use a trade name, Atripla. Been doing great for eight years. Do you keep him on Atripla or do you switch him? Anybody had that dilemma? Think about that? Sure. All right, here we go. So 45-year-old woman is referred to you. Nine years ago, she was diagnosed. Viral load at baseline was 36,000, CD4 count 150. Now she's doing great. Consistently less than 20, um, and uh, CD4 count above 500. She started on the fixed dose combination of Afavirenz in January 2007. It's the only thing she's done. She reports no symptoms. She says she's asymptomatic, feels well. At this point, you would continue her therapy, change her to two nukes and a boost to PI, two nukes and a strand transfer integrase inhibitor, or do something else. Go ahead and vote. Oh, reset. I, I, I didn't do that. Okay. Well, should we, can we reset or is it too much trouble? All right. Um, two muffins are sitting in the oven. <laughs> right? One muffin turns to the other one and says, boy, it's getting hot in here. And the other one goes, ah, a talking muffin. Anyway, that's my, that's my filler. Thank you very much. <laughs> what else am I supposed to do while we reset? Grasshopper goes into a bar, right? Hops up to the counter. Uh, grasshopper sits down. The bartender says, what are you having? Grasshopper goes, gosh, I don't know. I can't make up my mind. And the bartender says, we got a drink named right after you. And the grasshopper says, you got a drink named Steve? <laughs> All right, we're back. All right. It's tough up here. All right, let's go ahead and vote. Anybody know this music? Spaghetti Westerns, Clint Eastwood, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, for a fistful of dollars for a few dollars more. Okay. So, all right, 60% of the audience would say George Herbert Walker Bush, going to stay the course, change, change wouldn't be prudent. Who wants to stay with the group? Connie, Dr. Benson. Let's Dr. stay with Obama. <laughs> Can't. Term limits. All right. So it's, yeah. So I, I chose number three for a couple reasons. First is that I've had the experience with many of my patients who have been on long-term, stable, efavirenz-based regimens, uh, fully suppressed, saying they feel generally well, no problems. I switch them, 
and they come back a month later and say, I feel so much better. And so that's sort of a subjective reason for switching that um, I just feel like is an important feature. And then there are a couple of smaller studies and I think the results still need to be further evaluated that show subtle neurocognitive dysfunction in people who are on long-term efavirenz therapy compared to other regimens. Mm. And so I think there is still a subtle effect of efavirenz, even for people who've been doing well on it and feel well and are doing well. And, and, and so I think that may be the reason why people say, oh, I feel better when mm -hmm. they stop it. H how many times have you changed and the patient said, I don't feel any different? That happens. I've done that too. Yeah. But, but the first scenario is more common, at least in the patients I've done. So, yeah, Joe. Yeah, I, I guess the other reason I brought up during my talk is that obviously you can't continue someone on efavirenz and, and, and get the potential advantages of TAF. Um, so, so if you want to, if, if you feel there's advantages to TAF, and I don't remember how old this woman was. Um, she's a, she's our 45, still yeah. 45. So, so, you know, she's probably right around the kind of menopausal bone density hit. So that might be another uh, reason to do it. I did push four again. Because um, you, okay. you, you could change her therapy without having to change the class that she's being treated with. If, yeah. if you wanted to. Joe's, Joe's pushing real pivot. I'm not today. pushing well, it. Well, you know, it actually. The other sort of subtle reason that, that I've kind of moved in another direction is that there are still some substantial drug-drug interactions associated with efavirenz and the NNRTIs. And she's getting into that age group where you're going to be using some other drugs potentially that may have interactions with efavirenz. And so given the fact that she's 45, that to me right. seems a good time to make a switch. Trip. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add that you've been following this woman for years. Yeah, she's and just good to friend. have her come in and say we're switching you, obviously, is not what any of us would do. We would sit down and talk about the reasons, potentially. But all of us have had patients who say, I will not switch under any circumstances. This, this drug's done They all really smoke Territon. They'd rather, gosh, Mike. Only people who smell are people over the age of 50. I know. I'd rather gotta, fight than switch. you got to update your references. Oh, I'm well, sorry. Terryton and George Herbert, whatever Walker his Bush, name is. Sorry. Walker Bush. Okay. I know. Anyway, back to the commentary already in progress. The, um, <laughs> so if, if a patient says, I do not want to switch, I think that we have to support them to stay on their treatment too. You don't want to create an adversarial relationship but probably reintroduce the topic the next time you see them and the next and the next. Well, we've all had people who were committed to uh, AZT-based regimens for many years, or nevirapine. Yep. Just a comment um, as well, which is that I think that there is a bimodal distribution of patients. So I have patients who come in and say, what's new? Like, what can I do? Am I on the right thing right now? Is this, is this the Rolls Royce? And then there are other people who come in and say, you don't ask that question. So I think that it, it is our responsibility as, a, as treating HIV clinicians to sort of raise the issue that leaving well enough alone may not be the right answer. Yeah, so I've raised it. I'll, I'll play devil's advocate just for a second, um, not saying that, I, that anybody on the panel is incorrect. But um, it, the thing that strikes me just when I pull back to the 30,000-foot view, if you flash back to that study that I showed you where in 2007, everybody, 87% of our patients were on a as if it was the answer, you know. 
and now all of a sudden it's horrible. Right about the time it's going generic. I always found that interesting. So, so that's, it just, I'm not saying there's a conspiracy here, but, but it's funny how that kind of works out. Yeah, go ahead, go to the microphone, please. Yeah, I also wanted to ask you about how you guys would feel about, now she's whatever, 45 or something like yeah. that. How do you feel, if you switch her, if you're gonna get her off the efavirins or whatever, you know, maybe think about lipids or something like that. How do you feel about putting her on a, a booster, Cobacistat or Norvir? Would you, do you want to avoid the booster, even though she doesn't have an obvious risk factor? You I mean you're talking she's 45, she's going to be 55, 65. Yep, it's going to be adding drug in, drug interaction issues as she needs other meds, perhaps. Or or how about how do you feel about it metabolically? Like, do you think it's affecting her? You know, she's 45. Are you worried about giving her something that's metabolically active? I'd rather avoid it if I could. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, depending on what choices we have, but if I think you know your common sense is ruling here, right? that perhaps we want to do something that's going to have the least chance of harm. And uh, somebody just sent up a question or comment that they've been using some dolutegravir and they see side effects. Um, imagine that. Uh, it can happen, right? Uh, Trip, you want to review quickly the AE data for the integrase inhibitors? They're unusual. Um, lately, what's been case report published are some, in people who have a psych history, that there have been psych issues, um, insomnia, dreams, depression, that kind of thing. So we have to be on the lookout for it. It's not very common. Is that with all of the integrase inhibitors? Yeah, yeah, it's been reported with all three. Right. And the questioner asked about nausea and body aches. But I, I guess my answer is that almost any medicine can cause that. And it's just in the, in the studies, that's probably less than 2% or so. I have to look it up. But the fact that you get 90-plus percent people suppressed at one year by intent to treat means that 90-plus percent tolerated it well enough to continue out the study. And when you compare that to some of our early, early regimens where the success rate was only 70%, it wasn't because the drugs weren't active. It's because nobody could take them, and they dropped off for side effects or skipped doses. Uh, the thing I would add is that if it's it's very clear that abacavir has these very non-specific side effects. The you know randomized comparative ACTG study where abacavir 3TC was blinded comparison to TDF-FTC, there clearly was more of these kind of relatively vague um, but but clearly um, uh, significantly higher incidence in in patients on abacavir. So so I think you need to be careful if it if it is a Dalutavir and abacavir regimen that some right. of those side effects may be ascribed to the abacavir. Yeah. And, but I guess the take-home point to me is that any regimen, and even aspirin, can cause side effects. So nobody's just going to prescribe something and say, see you in six months, right? You're going to check them back in four weeks to maybe six weeks, see how they're doing. If they're not tolerating, at this day and age, no problem. Uh, find something else. It just got to, you know, that's kind of cool. But across the board, I think that's what we're talking about is what would be your intention for your first regimen. There is something people are calling the startup syndrome. You know, just in the first couple of weeks, people are anxious and they're taking it, and so they may have sort of g vague GI symptoms that go away. You can reassure people that they will go away. That's it's been seen in a yeah. number of studies, including the PrEP studies, that well, the startup syndrome. So exists. you could have a strategy of starting on something really intolerable. And then saying, ah, but we have something better. And then they love it, and then they take it forever. Mike, we don't, we don't like kidding, that idea. Just kidding. Just not, kidding. Not serious. Okay. All right. This, I just want to remind everybody about this. Yeah. All right. So this is right directed at your 1 o'clock talk from Dimitri. So this comes up a lot in our clinic. Uh, we have a PrEP clinic, so that's where we refer people who are seronegative. But for folks who don't have a PrEP clinic, you might have a partner 
who has a seronegative partner, and they're asking about what to do. So I think we've all seen this. Should I give PrEP to a seronegative partner of a successfully treated HIV patient? So it's a 45-year-old guy makes an appointment to see you. You take care of his partner who's HIV positive and has been on successful therapy for 17 years, right? Doing great. The, the seronegative partner feels well, doesn't have any significant history, um, no medications. He denies any partners you ask in outside of the relationship. Nope, 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 we're monogamous, everything's cool. So what are you going to do? Prescribe PrEP for this guy, not prescribe PrEP, or you don't really know what to do? What does he want? Pardon me? What does he want? Well, he came to see you. Let's go ahead and vote. All right, so was it Tyrannosaurus? Was it? Yeah. All right, so the majority, three quarters, may not have to give your talk, Dimitri. What do you think? And dissect this out for us. So um, this is a really a very a pretty hot topic. I mean, I think that behavioral risk it's pretty clear if you have someone who is a, a person with multiple partners who's not using condoms, like it's it's sort of a no-brainer. But when you have sort of the data of, about treatment as prevention, as well as what we know about pre-exposure prophylaxis and its effect, I think that um, as we heard um, from Dr. Volberding, that it's a question of what does the patient want. So sometimes it feels good to have a belt on. Sometimes it feels good to have a belt and suspenders on, and it depends on what the patient needs from the perspective of lowering their anxiety to get, a, from, to get HIV infection. Bottom line is that um, I prescribe PrEP to people who've had terrible sex lives related to the thought that their sexuality was directly related to death and destruction. And so if this individual says, I really want to go on pre-exposure prophylaxis so I feel more confident in my relationship, um, that tends to be a really good signal. The other part that's really important is that it is um, laudable that, that, that the conversation about multiple sex partners was had in the context of medical care. Um, one of the things that you find when you look at surveys of people who um, think they need PrEP, they tend to always be right. So if they say, I need PrEP, there may be subtle things that they're not telling you. Really? And so Yeah, so like, really? I'll give you an example. We did, we did a study in commercial sex venues in New York City and we ran them through the IPREX criteria, like we, we did survey of what they did sexually, we, did, we, uh, we asked them about PrEP, whether they thought they should be on it or not, and then what happened is the people who said, oh no, no, I don't need PrEP, were always wrong, because their risk was high enough to require PrEP, but the individuals who said, I need to go on PrEP, I think it's right, were 95% right. So if someone comes to you and has a situation and meets some criteria to do this, my answer tends to be to have an honest conversation, shift the narrative, which is let's not talk about sex, to actually let's talk about sex and what are your goals from your sex life and from your HIV prevention strategy. So that, I think, is the answer to the question, which is all of the above. So whatever, whatever <laughs> he wants to do that makes the most sense, that's evidence-based. So what happens, um, and we'll talk about a couple of studies, what happens if the data emerges that you know, if you have someone who's uh, starting antiretroviral therapy and also PrEP, and they go for six months, and you drop the PrEP, and the, the seroconversion rate tends to be low, then you have that honest conversation from the data perspective and right. say, what do you want to do? Uh, Mike, I'm just curious, uh, for the audience, um, a lot of you are ID docs. Uh, you might not be in practices where you've ever prescribed PrEP. Uh, I just wonder, by show of hands, how many have prescribed PrEP ever? There you go. It looks like over half. Yeah. 57%. Yeah. And the, the, tough part, the tough part here, though, I mean, at some point, th there's a couple of logistic issues, right? 
One is, okay, great, so I agree, I'd probably start him because we ended up starting this guy. Biologically, if, he, if his story is true, as you'll hear from Dimitri, the likelihood of his transmission from his partner is approaching zero. But it, it, maybe there's a psychological component or maybe there's something we don't know. But once we prescribe, then we're obliged to follow, right? And that adds to your clinic's volume and they're seen more often actually than our successfully treated patients. So he'll be coming in twice as often probably as his partner will, right? So we've got, we're obliged to do that. And then the second thing that New York doesn't have a problem with, but I do and probably you do in Illinois, is that is Ryan White care funds cannot be used for PrEP. So who pays and how do you negotiate that? And your, can your social worker who's paid by Ryan White even be involved? So just one comment about the increased visit uh, volume, that's, that's real. That you know, the guidelines, which we'll be talking about, talk about visits every quarter, mainly around HIV testing, and then we'll debate whether that should also be always for STI testing as well, based on the presentation coming up. Um, but from the perspective of the healthcare of people who are at risk for HIV, I think that um, very often these folks have never had appropriate sexual health care related work with them. So um, the thought that they're actually touching the system and getting some of the right stuff done is pretty inspiring. I mean, I would say in my sort of anecdotal experience of having about 40 or 50 patients on PrEP, when I swab their butt for the first time in their lives and they're 45, kind of telling that that's not what's happening in the world. And so I think that um, the opportunity is to think creatively. I know Mike is a creative thinker in how his clinic works, which is to figure out ways to use the entire care team and other low threshold strategies for doing um, the interim visits. Like, do you need to see the patient for an HIV test and for SDI testing, or is there a way to make that slicker? Yeah. And so that's like, I think, forget New York, like that's the strategy of a lot of clinical settings is can you do a, a fluid drop-off and get all of your testing done? Can you swab your own butt, swab your own throat? I mean, there are models like the Dean Street Clinic in London, which if you've not seen, Google it, find the YouTube video, it's amazing. Like that, I think, has a lot of legs for prep care. Um, it's pretty awesome. Just yell out and I'll repeat your question. Right. So the, so how do you use? Se Seattle does it, and then there's there's something. So the really question, if you couldn't hear it, was what about using pharmacists or the pharmacy somewhere to help with the with the follow? So there's another thing happening. At least it's happened in San Francisco. Paul, you have to correct me if I'm wrong. It's about to launch in New York, and I think that they want to go bigger. Is this thing called NERCS? Has anyone heard of NERCS? So I thought NERCS, that was Trump's real last name. No, right. Well, that's it's Trump's. a four-letter word, but it's not NERCS. Um, okay. So the, <coughs> sorry. So the uh, the thing about th this is like another strategy. I, it's like very sort of new implementation, which is a company. It's it's proprietary. They're actually doing this online risk assessment order form, and then it pretty much prints out a label for you to go to Quest or LabCorp wherever you want to go. You get your lab work done. It's sort of like the like some of the uh, OSC, like some of the apps that are out there. And what'll happen is that if you clear from the perspective of your risk uh, screen, your testing is negative. They will um, either have you pick up or they will deliver pre-exposure prophylaxis to you to start. So like that, you know, I think that there's really good models of medicalizing it and then really good models of demedicalizing it. And the answer is some people need one and some people need the other. Right. So I think it's pretty inspiring so it, that there's actually It is an emerging area that we're going to hear more about, but I, I wanted to make sure we got it in this. We got about 15 minutes left. I got a few more questions. We'll go through a little bit quicker. Um, one of the questions comes up, can I use TAP in patients with impaired renal function? 
here's a man newly diagnosed, um, 128,000, CD4 count 280, wild type virus, smoker, um, negative family history for CAD, uh, has a creatinine of 2.1 and a creatinine clearance estimated at 48. He is hepatitis B surface antibody positive, but um, he's core negative for IgG. And so now what would you recommend? Uh, you can see there's some PATH, tenofovir, abacavir choices, different integrase inhibitors go ahead, and eight is some other option. All right, so a lot of folks go with a two-drug combination, two-pill of TAF, FTC, and dolutegravir. Some go with COBE uh, and elvitegravir. Panel, what would you all do? Well, I honestly think that um, any of those three are, are actually probably reasonable. I, I might have missed something, but, but um, I don't worry about adjusting 3TC um, uh, with a uh, creatinine clearance of 50 or 48 or 40. I, I, I mean, I, I think the package insert tells you to do that, but I, I, I don't worry about that. So I think choice five would be reasonable. Um, I, I mean, I, I showed the, the, the data on, on TAF, uh, uh, L-Vitegravir, Cobicistat, and FTC, and, and people with creatinine clearances between 30 and 70. It certainly looks stable over a two-year period. So I really think any choice is... is Reasonable. I, I personally like uh, mm -hmm. TAF, FTC, dolutegravir as a as a as a therapy, um, but but I, I I can see arguments for any of the. Right. Three. So just in the interest of time, I'll I'll take you through what I was thinking when I designed the question, and Joe hit on a lot of the points. Nobody at this day and age, and nobody in the audience either, would go with the every other day tenofovir DF. Um, the abacavir 3TC actually that is a fixed dose. It hit me this week. I had a woman uh, who had to switch over and for creatinine clearance issues, and her creatinine clearance estimated was 40. So I thought, ah, can I really use a fixed dose? And in the old days, I would have broken it apart, but we talked about it. And with the newer data coming out that you can use the fixed dose combination of elvitegravir with TAF and FTC, which is very similar to 3TC, without breaking apart down to creatinine clearance of up to 30, um, then you know you kind of say, well, maybe the 3TC rising levels aren't that toxic, and it's probably true. So and I think also you get improvement. The other thing I wanted to point out before we move on is that remember what Joe told us about um, the elvitegravir Kobe when you're going to get a little bit of bump in creatinine, but you'll get the same kind of bump for the, a similar but different enzyme reason for creatinine secretion inhibition, right? We tend to think GFR is where creatinine gets cleared, and it does most of it but there's still a little bit of proximal tubule secretion through different enzymes, and one enzyme is hit by Kobe and shut down, so you're gonna get about a 0.15 bump in creatinine, which will, not because there's a reduction in renal function, just it's an epi phenomena, not epi, but it's a biologic phenomena. And so expect the creatinine clearance estimate to drop whenever you use dolutegravir or anything with Kobe. Yeah, I just wanted to say what a difference a year makes, right? Last year, people would have been looking for nuke-sparing regimens for this person or maybe choosing every other day TDF, which we wouldn't use today, as you said, 
Um, so it's interesting that so few people voted for number seven, which yeah. is the nuke sparing uh, regimen. Well, let's talk about that real quick because uh, some of the folks I've been working with in my clinic say, I'm going to use the D&D regimen, which is Dalyotegavir Darunavir. And I said, okay, um, I know there's studies that are ongoing. I don't know of any results. And they said, oh, no, no, but it's going to work. And I'm kind of like, eh, because if you remember the Raltegavir Darunavir study where it actually didn't do so well. It didn't do terrible. But it didn't work well, so I'd say hold on that until we have a little bit more data. It's the most popular regimen for which we have no data. Yeah. It's like <laughs> Hamilton. It's the best play I've never seen. It's great. Um, and then these are the data uh, th with the bumps going down. You've already seen that. All right. Can I use TAF in somebody with hepatitis B co-infection? Is that okay? Does it work the same as tenofovir DF? So we have a 46-year-old man, same story, uh, interest of time. This time he's core antibody positive by IgG, okay? And he's surface antigen positive. So what are you going to use now? Uh, the creatinine clearance was normal. Um, so what are you going to pull here? Let's go ahead and vote. I bet nobody picks number seven. I hope nobody picks. Does your duck beep? Let's see. Ooh, okay. A lot of people like the TAF FTC. Some folks went with tenofovir DF. Nobody, well, a few people went with abacavir. Uh, we'll talk about that. Anybody want to dissect this out a little bit? Joe? Trip? I'll start. Um, so you are treating two infections here, and you need two drugs for hep B that are active and one drug or in three drugs for HIV. So that should knock out the abacavir options here. You really don't want to use it. Also, number seven doesn't treat hep B at all, so you didn't want to use that either. People uh, asked the question, does TAF have activity against hepatitis B? There was some debate. We saw phase two studies. There are now uh, data to support that indeed it has activity against hepatitis B, and the pharmaceutical companies actually submitting the data of phase three studies to the FDA for indication for TAF as well. So it confirms biology works that, I mean, again, the biggest difference between TDF and TAF is that the plasma levels are much higher with TDF than with TAF, but the intracellular diphosphate triphosphate is the same. So it would make sense that since the inhibition of viral replication for both these viruses is intracellular, that if that fact is true, which it is, it should work, and in fact it does. Does that mean we should have been using it all along just based on a biological principle without clinical data? No. But now we have the clinical data that proves the biology was correct. In a patient with acute cryptococcal meningitis, do I wait to start ARV therapy? How many people have encountered that question? When do I start ARV therapy? Yep. All right. So let's see what the team thinks here. We've got a 26-year-old guy with a four-week history of headache, progresses a severe and associated reduction in mental status. He gets admitted to the hospital. CT scan shows normal, actually shows small ventricles, open uh, uh, aqueduct. LP has an opening pressure of 400. Serum cryptoantigens 1 to 4096. And then the CSF is high. He's obviously got cryptomeningitis. He gets started on amphotericin B and 5FC. His HIV viral load is 213,000. The CD4 count is 42. Remarkably, that's the exact median CD4 count in the large cryptococcal meningitis study. I don't know how that happened. So 
regarding when to start treatment, you would start therapy right now, wait until two weeks, six weeks, ten weeks, or not use it at all, go ahead and vote. <laughs> Is that midnight in Paris? You know when they're when he's dancing through the well, maybe not. Doesn't matter. All right. So I'd say 80% of folks said they'd start pretty soon, and 19% said a little bit later. Fortunately, nobody said zero. Good. That was an ejector seat question. If you voted there, <laughs> you're out of the room. <laughs> okay. Good. I didn't see anybody bodies flying. Okay. So Connie, you want to take this one? So we have one large randomized clinical trial that was done outside of the United States and mostly in multiple sites in Sub-Saharan Africa. That's the COAT study and it looked at whether you start antiretroviral therapy early or later after you get control of cryptococcal disease. Cutting to the chase, the results of the study showed that there was increased mortality if you started antiretroviral therapy in the first two weeks after starting treatment for cryptococcal meningitis, and if you waited too late after 10 weeks. But this period between two and five weeks showed lower mortality associated with cryptococcal meningitis. Now, a lot of us thought that that was a curious result, and it should be noted that the treatment available for cryptococcal meningitis in the countries where this was done is amphotericin B and fluconazole. <coughs> and so they used a combination of amphotericin B with fluconazole as the treatment for the underlying cryptococcal disease. Although, although teasing out all of the different subgroups uh, showed some differences, it was a real finding, this increased mortality, if you started in the first two weeks. And so that has led to guidelines recommending waiting at least till after the first two weeks, and many people suggesting that you start somewhere between two and five weeks after mm -hmm. a diagnosis. Now, Mike and I have had ongoing conversations about this, and I think there are lots of differences with how cryptococcal meningitis got treated or gets treated in lower and middle income countries that have fewer resources and fewer options and different choices that we have here. And I think the key for this gentleman, he has very high opening pressure and mortality associated with cryptococcal meningitis has been clearly linked to not adequate management of increased intracranial pressure so that if you're able to monitor, if you're able to intervene and treat in lowering intracranial pressure, and if you have close monitoring, I think the data for most of us who treat patients here would suggest that you want to start antiretroviral therapy as soon as is feasible right. after you get control of the cryptococcal meningitis. Right. So Connie indicated we've talked about this a lot. There, the study in Sub-Saharan Africa had a mortality of around 60%. The mortality in the U.S. and Europe for the same disease is about less than 10%. And they said they manage pressure. I believe them. Um, all, everything's true, but they're, they're, we're in different healthcare systems, and no matter how you slice it. So a group got together from the RCC and did a cohort-based analysis, which isn't randomized and isn't, uh, isn't quite as pure as the Sub-Saharan African one, 
but it looked at a large number of patients, and this is what it basically showed. Uh, it's, it's in your handouts, but um, it will be. Um, but you'll see in the red line, uh, this is mortality, and that's deferred after two weeks. And there was the beginning of a separation of long-term outcomes when the art therapy was started anytime after two weeks compared to those who got it in the first two weeks. So what do I, what do, I do? I think I fall right exactly where Connie just landed and say, I'm not going to start it necessarily on day one. I'm going to manage all these other things. But as a patient starts to do better and is able to eat and swallow on their own, remember this guy had reduced mental status at baseline, uh, that's usually about seven, eight, nine days. They're still in the hospital, at least in today's world. Then I'll start the ARV therapy and get them on it before they leave the hospital, watching for iris and other things. But typically that is, that's worked pretty well. So that just wanted to kind of touch on this because it's an emerging field. Just to add to that, the original study that looked at acute OIs and whether there was benefit to starting ART right away here in the States was ACTG 5164. The most po or common diagnosis, I think 60% was PCP. Number two is bacterial infections. But number three was cryptococcal meningitis on that study. Yeah. And that showed a, a reduction in mortality of 50% by starting early. So uh, it supports. I forgot about that. Yeah, good point. Supports those studies. All right. So this is, the, uh, this is the last question. You're supposed to cheer when you hear that. Um, in a patient with advanced HIV infection, should I, in today's world, empirically treat for MAC or provide prophylaxis or something else? And we have, like, the world's expert sitting on the panel with Connie. So the 29-year-old guy presents with early HIV infection. He has chronic diarrhea. He says he's felt hot on occasion, doesn't take his temperature. No night sweats, poor appetite. He's wasted, disheveled, but on the presentation right now, he's afibril. He's got a paddlesplenomegaly that is obvious. He's got sebderm, but no other skin lesions. His viral load is almost a million. His C4 count is five. So it's a failure of the system to find this guy earlier and get him into care. Um, liver enzymes are two times upper limit of normal. And his bilirubin is 215, uh, is, is Alkfos is 215, bilirubin is normal. So, what are you going to do? Are you going to, the guidelines say treat with azithromycin once weekly, or are you just going to treat empirically with, assume he's got MAC until proven otherwise and start that, or maybe not start anything, uh, neither. Go ahead and vote. I hate snakes. Boom. There you go. All right, Dr. Benson, you're back. I'm going to go the, ahead and Connie, real quick. Or Joe. Just, I, I've, I'll figure out what the right, Connie will tell me what the right answer is. But I'm quite sure, at least in my opinion, number one is the wrong answer. Um, oh. I, I, I would either do two or three, but I'm not sure exactly which one. I, I probably would do two, but Connie will probably say three is okay. The reason I wouldn't do one is, is it's so likely that this guy, the likelihood that he has disseminated MAC is, is high. And, and so you're not really prophylaxing him. In fact, you're treating a mycobacterial infection. You're exposing a mycobacterial infection to one drug. And, and so I, that, that I wouldn't do. But this happens all the time because the residents in the hospital, that's what they know to do. So, so, so they do this. So, um, so. So I am not as much of an empiricist as many people might be, and I would do 
three, neither of these options, because what you owe this patient is an evaluation to detect disseminated MAC, not empiric therapy. And the empiric therapies here are not great, and I would do whatever diagnostic workup I felt was appropriate in this setting to rule out disseminated MAC, and that's not that hard to do. You can do a bone marrow, you can do blood cultures, you can get a liver biopsy if you need to, if he has elevated liver enzymes. One key sort of clinical clue about disseminated MAC that people don't pay that much attention to anymore is anemia. Mm -hmm. There's actually an effect on erythropoietin yep. mm -hmm. related to bone marrow invasion with disseminated MAC, and there's a, an anemia out of proportion to other factors and other underlying diseases, and sometimes that's a clinical clue. And alkaline phosphatase is sometimes a yep. clinical clue. And so there's lots of things you can do to rule out disseminated MAC. Con Connie, um, he's got a big liver and spleen. Uh, wouldn't he, if he has disseminated MAC, almost certainly have lots of adenopathy, intra-abdominal adenopathy? Would that be a, a screening test at all? Actually, lymphadenopathy is not as common as you would imagine. Four weeks yeah. after starting art, he could well have it. Yes. Right? <laughs> right? Then so you'll get your lymphadenopathy. Yeah. Once so his CD4 count is so low that you know, he might not have lymphadenopathy. So I mean, I would certainly have gotten Mike. blood cultures. Okay, yeah. yeah. So but I don't know if I would have gone all the way to do a liver biopsy. Okay, well. so tip of the hat to the panel, because I, I carefully designed this case not to trip up anybody, but this is... This is that intersection of where guidelines and clinical judgment intersect, and it requires us to really step away from the guidelines and just apply ourselves to the clinical situation. I could have made him sicker, I could have made him febrile, in which case most people would have used empiric therapy while you sorted it out, but he was afebrile. But he had enough other signals, and I should have put anemia in there, that suggest this could well be MAC. And so I, like Joe, would have avoided the first, not because it's totally wrong, it's not an ejector seat question, but if you did that for a while, you're going to get macrolide resistance in a period of time. And that's not good. And so you want to, you want, there's no urgency here, the guy's not critically ill, and if you were, then you probably treat for MAC empirically. Um, and then whether or not we ultimately need MAC prophylaxis in today's world with today's antiretrovirals and the recovery of the immune system so quickly, I'm not sure we do need that anymore, although the guidelines probably won't change because there's a randomized trial from 1904 or something <laughs> that Connie ran that showed that it actually was a good idea. Way before I was born. Yeah. So anyway, I wanted to leave you with that one. I think we're right on time. Are there any other questions from the audience about any of what we've I like the fact that people raised them as we went. Okay, thank you for your attention and you hung in there with us. I appreciate it. Thanks to the panel.